there's a lot of companies in Silicon Valley, unbelievable companies that are phenomenal places to work and they're having unbelievable success and they're at the right place and the right time with the right macro tailwind. And there's quite a bit of aspect of luck. And I think there's been a lot of luck, but we have fought to be here because of the decision-making, the hard work we put in for a very long period of time. Hi, I'm Jubin, operating partner at Kleiner Perkins, and I'm excited that you're tuning into Grit, a podcast that sits down with amazing leaders every week to discuss what it takes to create, build, and scale world-class organizations. The goal of this is not for it to be a highlight reel of how successful my guests are, rather a candid exploration of how hard it is, both personally and professionally, to build history-making companies. Speaking of incredible companies, we don't do sponsorships on the show, so if you're inspired by the stories of my guests, my call to action is to reach out and let's find a great home for you in the Kleiner portfolio. So I will welcome you to the show. Welcome. Thank you. I'm stoked to have you on the West Coast. I kick all of these things off the exact same way. I will read your background back to you. Thankfully for me, I screw these things up a lot. Your background and experience is pretty short. We're going to pretty much focus on one thing throughout this conversation. So hopefully I don't screw this up too bad. But if I do, just let me know. Sounds great. All right. You got your bachelor's in computer science from, Do we? can we abbreviate this MTU? Yeah. Is that right? At Michigan? Some people are like, oh, is that MIT? I'm like, uh, no, no, sorry. <laughs> not MIT. <laughs> Definitely not. Michigan Technological University. Then you went to Los Alamos National Laboratory for a uh, high-performance computing fellowship in the summer of 2011 during school. Then your next internship the following year was at Palantir, based here in the Bay Area, right? Yep. Okay. And then- uh, Pardon me. My first internship was in Washington, D.C. With Palantir? With Palantir, yeah. And then did you do another internship with them the following year? I did in New York City, yeah. You did another one in New York City. Then you went on to co-found and be the CEO of a company called Handshake. So here's what I kind of want to do. Let me read where Handshake is today, and then I want to go way back to the beginning. Cool. Deal? Yeah. Because I think it's an insane story. So current valuation is $3.5 billion. Raised $200 million in Series F most recently from KOTU. That was like, what, in the last six, nine months? Yep. We were the Series A investor a long-ass time ago. It's 2015? I'm not good with the years, but yeah, it's it a long time right. ago. Yep. Yeah, okay. And then Lightspeed, Spark, you've raised a total of $434 million of funding. It has grown almost 1,000% in the last three years. 100% of the Fortune 500 use the technology. Over 18 million students and young alumni from over 1,300 universities use Handshake to connect with 600,000 employers. Is that all like roughly accurate? Yeah, the numbers are, are pretty close, yeah. Okay, you want to start with what does Handshake do? Handshake is the place that most young professionals turn to to find work, to find internships, to find full-time jobs, to connect with employers, to connect with young alumni. LinkedIn is a lot about your past and Handshake's a lot about your future and we help young professionals find meaningful work. And increasingly nowadays we're the same advantages that we have built this business on helping traditionally college students find internships and jobs is extremely extensible and valuable for folks that are trying to restart or jumpstart their career. So quickly Handshake's now becoming a place where many people are starting to jumpstart their career or restart their career. Maybe they're taking a Coursera class or maybe they're going to a boot camp or a community college. Our 650,000 companies want to connect with all early talents. And so that's what Handshake's becoming. Fun fact, when I was going through school, every summer I would work at the Internship and Career Center. And this was before Handshake was a company. And every career fair, people would come in with resumes. And this one was LinkedIn was like starting to peak, but not to the point where any students had a LinkedIn, nor did they have anything to put on their LinkedIn. And they certainly didn't have a professional photo. And so what I would do is every year, I would get a photographer to come in with a little black screen behind them. And every student that would come in, I'd be like, hey, Professional a, headshot. Take a picture. Yeah. And they're like, what for? And I'm like, LinkedIn. And they're like, what's LinkedIn? And I'm like, this is what's going to be your virtual resume one day. Yeah. And they're like, I don't have anything to put on there. And I'm like, yeah, but it's still good to have a LinkedIn. Yeah. Okay. So anyway, I did this year after year after year. And in preparation for this, I was looking back and I was doing all sorts of random shit, trying to figure out how the hell can we be better at connecting students with job opportunities so anyway, I got the warm and fuzzies I love it. when I was just researching this because I was like, man, do we need this? So it was super cool. Thank you. What was 
conversation like for you growing up at the dinner table? I think my dad cared more about skiing than my grades. <laughs> <laughs> I was my hockey coach. He was my baseball coach. We were like a huge sports oriented family. We talked a lot about, you know, it's a very like kind of achievement focused household. There was just a lot going on. I mean, we we're busy with school. We were busy outside of school. That was kind of what we talked about at dinner table. What does that mean? Achievement focused household. I think an easy way to describe it is, you know, when you went to go see your grandpa or your uncle or your aunt, it was always like the first question was, how's school going? Or how's baseball going? Or how's hockey going? Or parents had a dinner party and you'd get kind of marched down the stairs and you have to introduce yourself to all your parents' friends. And in our household, you look for a lot of affirmation around like what you did. Dads are a big role model for you, huh? For sure. When you went to uh, Palantir, can you talk about the story of what happened What did you start to realize? And for those listening, Palantir is a very world-class recruiting team that gets a really high bar of engineers. You go from Michigan to DC your first year, end up at Palantir. What's the realization that you start having? Oh my gosh. I mean, I met kids that were starting companies and I'm like, oh sweet. Like we got, what are you doing? Lawn mowing, leaf collection, like you shoveling some snow, like what's the local hot in there? You know, they're like, no, I'm dropping out of school to raise money from venture capitalists. It was just earth shattering. And you never thought like a software engineer could even raise money. I had never heard of that before. You know, I felt pretty, to be honest, like vulnerable. Like I felt pretty intimidated. Like people were talking about like geopolitics and their summers in Europe and their international exchange programs. And I was just like, holy moly, like maybe I'm not smart enough to be here. Boy, you know, everyone goes to Stanford and MIT and Carnegie Mellon. At the time, Palantir was like 700 employees and it was, I was maybe 5% of the internship class, didn't go to a top 5, 10 school in the country. Lots of master's students, lots of just absolute gunners. My story for getting there was cold emailing recruiters and randomly connecting, which trying to break in to tech. So funny story is, I mean, I worked at this internship called at Los Animals National Labs. It was unbelievable. As a freshman, I was working with a bunch of like postdocs doing supercomputing research. A lot of them were from the Bay Area, had gone to Stanford, and they were talking about Google recruiting on their campus. I'm like, oh my gosh, like Google shows up on your campus. That is outrageous. I built a little bit of confidence. I was like, I wonder if like I could go work in Silicon Valley. This was when Quora was getting started, and there was this piece of content that was like, or it's the hardest internship to get in Silicon Valley. And they were like, it's Dropbox and Palantir. That was right around when there were like 500, 700 people at both companies. It was like the hardest bar. And I was like dead set on trying to break into one of those companies. One of those two. Yeah. And then I read this article by Sham Shankar, who's the CEO over there. And he's like, it sounds so nerdy nowadays, but he talks about like technology and software engineers being heroes, like making an impact on the world, helping with world hunger, helping with my summer internship was working with NICMIC, which is the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. Right. So we were applying technology to try to find missing children. I love making impact. So I was like, oh my gosh, it said it's the hardest internship. And there's this article about making a difference on the world. I want to work there. Nobody would pay attention to me at Palantir until finally I got an opportunity to interview. And it's kind of funny to reflect on it. Like they flew me out and I was like, dad, they're going to fly me out. He's like, this nerd stuff's like really paying off. Like they're going to fly out. So he picked me up in like a town car. I was like, oh my gosh, I'm in like a Cadillac. They picked me up in an interview. So it was pretty cool. There was a picture that you posted. So your dad said, oh, this nerdy stuff's really working out for you. There's a picture that you posted of yourself when you were like, 12 years old on Twitter holding a computer. Do you know yeah. what I'm talking about? I love it, yeah. And I mean this in the most kind way, the nerdiest thing I could ever possibly <laughs> yeah. see. So your family knew that the whole way oh, through. Totally. I was like I a was super nerd. It. Yeah. And you loved computers. I loved it. Okay. So you do the interview. Were you nervous for it? How'd you prep? Yeah. I was super nervous. They flew me out. I did this interview. It was my first whiteboarding ever. Like I had never really interviewed at another Silicon Valley tech company. It was like my dream job, but I did pretty well. I mean, I was pretty savvy. I built a lot of confidence when I was working with all like the postdoctoral students and the master's students at Los Alamos. Like I ended up excelling. Well, you looked to your left and right and realized these are people with advanced degrees that went to the Ivy League schools and I can kind of keep up with them. I mean, I'm pretty competitive and I was just like, this is my shot. This is what I've been working for. One thing I've always been really passionate, right? So I was very clear in the interview, this was a dream opportunity. They had made fun of me because I wore like a button down, like a tie. I was ready to rock and roll. And they're like, this is Silicon Valley. You're supposed to not look the part. I'm like, this is a big deal for me. Yeah, we're going to give it our all. So you get there and what happens? You start to rebuild your confidence. Basically the same thing that happened at the lab at Los Alamos kind of starts to happen again where you're like- It's just a whole nother level though. Right, but you're like, it wasn't a fluke. Okay, now it is the brain trust of a bunch of these really, really smart people who all have very different credentials than I do, but 
seems like I'm doing okay. Or was it like, oh shit, I'm in the wrong place? I remember getting like probably two or three weeks into the interview process. You know, you get your environment set up and you get paired with a mentor. And I remember meeting Alex Atala, like one of my friends at Palantir, then went on to co-found OpenSea. I mean, just the level of talent there was through the roof. And I remember calling my dad and just having a huge degree of imposter syndrome. In one sense, I was really intimidated. In the other sense, I really loved it because it was really cool. So yeah, I, I would say I was intimidated at the same time. My dad was like, give it your all. I think what he told me is like, you might not be the smartest one in the room. And this is something I, I still like remembering. I'm definitely not the smartest one in the room, but I feel pretty comfortable that I will outwork you. And I've got a lot of drive to make it happen. And I think that's what really, I ended up you know, doing pretty well there that summer. A couple of friends won the company-wide hackathon. By the time I left that Palantir internship, that was actually the impetus for Handshake, which is referring a lot of my friends from Michigan Tech to Palantir and just realizing that- You have smart friends. Yeah. They don't live in Silicon Valley. They don't get these opportunities. They don't get these opportunities, but if you can serve as the poster boy for success in these things, you know your friends, you know they're pretty smart too, but they're in the suburbs of Michigan somewhere and you think they could do it and you start making good money. Didn't you make $60,000 in a year from referrals? Yeah, just the internship salary was like absurd. I think I paid for all of school, my internship salary. Yeah. And then Palantir would pay you, I think at one point it was like eight, then it was 10, then it was $15,000 for engineering referral that you made to the company. And it was like, I cannot believe these recruiters sitting down with me and paying me $10,000 per friend I'm hiring. How come they can't reach us? So then what, you go back home, and you start talking to your dad again, which seems like a central theme throughout this story, and you just are obsessing over this thing. Like, you can't stop thinking about this problem. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, to be funny, like, I'd never heard of, like, a hackathon before. Like, I never Yeah, like, your world was just flipped upside down. It was totally shattered. I came back to Michigan Tech, and we started this uh, IT Oxygen, which was, like, an IT organization on campus. We would rent out this, like, club room, and everyone would come down to the basement, and we ran these talks. In my community, I just thought it was like, I wanted to help everyone else try to achieve this. It was so cool. We were getting, working on cool problems. We were like respected as engineers because it was like a technology force organization as opposed to working at Target. You're like in service of them doing retail. They're not a technology force organization. So software engineers don't get a ton of respect. So I came back and I was like, let's run a hackathon. Here's how, what it means to break an attack. Here's how you build your resume. We all need to start working on side projects. Here's how you network with companies. Here are the list of startups you can work at. Here's what it means to have a series A, a series B, a series C. And that's when I started reading a lot about like Paul Graham and that blog was pretty impactful on me where it talked how to start a company, how to raise money, how to identify like a problem, how to build a team. I read Zero to One by Peter Thiel. This was back in the day, right when startup class was being taught by Peter Thiel, which actually was listed on, I think it was like on YouTube at the time. You could actually watch his classes. I watched all the classes. You were all in. I was like all in. And, and that's where I was like, well, this is a problem. You know, yeah. like maybe we like start a company yeah. to try to make this easier. Yeah. I'm a big Harry Potter buff. And it reminds me of when Harry does the defense against the dark arts himself. Everyone goes in behind and just teaching them like behind everyone's back. No teachers. No, it's like this little secret that everyone's just discovering together. And it's a little fraternity. Yeah. So but it sounded like you were doing that there. Yeah, it was, it was really cool. So then what? Your earth is starting to shatter and then you realize, okay, somehow I want to be participatory in changing this. And is this between your first and second internship at Palantir? Yeah, we started working on this my as soon as I got back from my sophomore year internship. And that was your first one? The that sophomore was my year. first one, yep. yeah. Okay. And I got back there and it was really cool at the Palantir internship. They like flew me out to San Francisco. They flew me up to New York. I met like all the interns. I built a lot of friends there. So there was like these MBA interns and business interns, some of which I'm still in touch with today that were teaching me about venture capital, teaching me about starting companies. So I got back and my mind was just blown at what was out there. I got back to Michigan Tech and I was like, maybe we could start a company trying to make it easier for students to find internships and jobs, kind of regardless of what their parents did or what school they went to and help kids like us. I think I had several friends that took jobs that were graduating from Michigan Tech right after that as well. Here are people that are struggling to find jobs now taking $100,000 plus opportunities at Palantir. So we went to the career fair, the fall career fair that year, and I had a pretty good GPA and was working on a lot of side projects. And I went to the career fair and I got like 15 interviews and I did all in-person interviews at the career fair. And I would just flip the interview around and be like, hey, like I'm already set for an internship next summer. Like I just want to talk to you about how you do college recruiting. And I like walked into every college. You, tro in you Trojan horse. Trojan hosted the career fair. That year we like snuck into other universities career fairs. We went to me and two friends would walk in every like info session we could and just try to talk to their university recruiting manager. We sat down at our career center for like hours. We started talking to friends. We understood the student problem, but we didn't understand the university and the employer problem enough. 
I got in my broken down Jeep and would drive during the middle of the week to other universities trying to go talk to their career center. Like in Michigan. In Michigan, yeah. yeah. And Michigan Tech's pretty far. Like the closest university is like Northern Michigan University and past that, you got to leave the Upper Peninsula. So it's like a five plus hour drive to get to any other university yeah. in the middle of the winter. So we would just drive down and I would just like sit in career centers and like talk to them. What are your problems? How do you run the info sessions? How do you run recruiting? Then we talk to the employers and a couple of people like were really... They're just like, wow, this kid is like a lot of energy. I'm happy to tell you what's going on with my recruiting program. And they would explain what's going on. And that's when we started to put together the world and an idea for what Handshake could be. And then we started building. And then we built sophomore year, junior year, senior year. While you're driving around, what are you thinking about? When you're like driving around in the winter of Michigan, six hours from one university to another, ostensibly sleeping in your car. Do you think you're crazy? Or do you think this is so obvious to you? It really was frustrating to me that based on what school we went to, here are these kids, they grew up in like Greenwich, Connecticut, and they're like dads in banking. And they like fly around first class and they've been to like all around the world and they know everything. They go to Stanford, then they're friends with the right people and their parents are the right people and they get the perfect internship. Mm -hmm. And I was like, that's so unfair. If I had known what Stanford's campus looked like, I would have tried a little bit harder in high school. I had no idea what was out there. (laughs) And why is it that just based on what school you went to, like so much of your career success is totally defined. And then I went to New York the next summer with Palantir and then I was even further exacerbated at just like how these family network, socioeconomic status, the color of your skin influences it. So we were driving around school to school. It was like, how can, like Milwaukee School of Engineering we drove to, unbelievable engineering school, right? Kettering University, unbelievable engineering school. Companies can't recruit there because quite frankly, it was less of a company problem and more of the fact it was irresponsible to go to some of these smaller institutions. It was took so many resources to get there. You don't get the bang for your buck. You don't get the bang for your buck. And so we were like, how do we put Michigan Tech on the map? I have these friends that like, absolutely crushed it at Palantir. They went head to head with all the top Stanford kids and beat them in many cases. It frustrated me. That was what was going on in my mind, yeah. Chip on your shoulder feels like putting it lightly, but like you and your friends constantly being the underdogs. Do you think that's just giving you this leg up all the time where you're kind of discounted, a little underrated, and it just makes you so much more motivated and dogged to win? Do you ever feel like it's just like a secret weapon that you have that you can't really teach someone that doesn't have that? You feel like it's just natural ability that you and your friends beat all the other people at Palantir? I don't know. Do you think there was just another edge another level that you could get to? I think being an underdog is teaches you a lot of really important life lessons, but I've definitely met some, for every one of those examples of the Greenwich kid that went to Princeton, there's also the Greenwich kid that went to Princeton that is incredibly hardworking and grew up with an amazing value system and was raised super well. So I don't believe it's like us versus them. I used to kind of think that, but I think it's way more about kind of the values of which you grow up and what your parents instill in you and a little bit of nature. When I was like sleeping out of my car for four months, driving around school to school, living in the back of McDonald's parking lot, there was no safety net. I think not having a safety net is you're backed up into a corner and you have a decision. Do I quit? Or at this point, we had a lot of responsibility. So I do think that no safety net is, I don't know if I ever could have done what it takes to to get Handshake started today all over again. Yeah. So you start Handshake with your two buddies, and then you just start driving campus to campus? Sophomore year, we work on it. I recruit a couple of friends to work on it. Some of the friends, we would just buy like Little Caesars pizza and sit in the library Friday night, all day Saturday, all day Sunday after school. You know, I was so naive about what it took to run a successful company. Given what I know today, it was so counterintuitive. We were going to sign up every university in the country. These are ideas that like every business person I talked to at Palantir was just like, kid, I love the passion. This is a huge problem. I told you to get it, but like, they just didn't want to break my heart, right? And so we just, me and my friends, we just love this side project. I saw a picture of you. It was you sleeping on the floor in green chucks and it looked like you were using a sweater as a pillow and it was in some like hallway after, I don't even know what this is, but M-Hacks? Yeah, M-Hacks. Do you know yeah. what I'm talking, do you know yeah. what picture I'm talking about? Yeah, totally. Is that when you were building? 
Yeah, we MX was pretty cool because a couple of the guys there let us actually test Handshake. Handshake was the place that people built resumes and then employers could message them. And this was like the very first MX or the second MX. What's MX? This was like early in this kind of idea of a hackathon concept. So like yeah, at, at, at M- University of Michigan. Okay, yeah. yeah. And we're building Handshake there. And so you're testing it at University of Michigan. Totally. And we had driven down from Michigan Tech and yeah. put up a couple carloads of friends. But yeah, those were pretty early days. That was, I think, probably my junior year of college. Why did you decide to do the testing at University of Michigan? Well, the whole goal that we had when building the product was that we were going to build this unbelievable career service management application uh, because universities, their career centers are very resource constrained and they really struggled with out-of-date technology. And the idea was if we built software for the university career centers to help them engage more students and bring more employers to campus, that they would actually you know, serve as this partner in acquiring students and acquiring employers. We'd be able to turn it into a network. But this really relied on the fact that we needed to be able to sign up like every university career center or a lot of them in order to be valuable because it was a network. The old university career centers were all these siloed, isolated systems. So to extend the point here, if you were General Motors or you were Goldman Sachs, like you had to had to log into 350 different systems to recruit at 350 different schools. And so what that led to is Palantir couldn't recruit at Michigan Tech because every university was on its own system. So we were like, how do we turn this into a network to make it easier for recruiters to connect with more students? Yeah, that makes sense. And then did University of Michigan sign up to be the first university? No. So we, sophomore year, junior year, senior year. You're incubating it there, testing it there. And driving around all these schools. And we signed up five schools in our first year after college. And your dad basically put a mortgage on the house because he saw you by the way, your energy hasn't changed from probably eight years ago. This exact same energy of, I need to solve this problem. And I, he said a really cool quote that I was reading, which was like, I can't live with myself unless I help support you in this endeavor. And gave you the money that he had with the car because you couldn't drive around a broken Jeep so that you could go drive to these campuses and try and sign them up. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Isn't that the most special form of motivation? You don't want to let down your co-founders. You want to solve this problem. But like now you owe it to your dad. Yeah, I mean, it was... Because uh, you're like your idol. It was really, really hard. I don't want to kind of over-glamorize it. I mean, it was really special, but it was probably some of the hardest days of my life because this was my dad's, all of his retirement money, and he had worked very hard to save up this retirement money. And I was there on the journey growing up with him in construction, and here he was writing us a $150,000 check. Everything you had. Yeah, and then he continued to write more checks as we were running out of money. You couldn't fail. There wasn't much to fall back on, so... We had a bunch of student debt and then we had years invested in this. So it was like pretty awesome to rally together as a team to make it all happen. And when you're going around signing up these first five schools, I've heard you say, and you said you you briefly mentioned it earlier, but you're sleeping in McDonald's parking lots. Yeah. McDonald's has very consistent Wi-Fi. This was 2013, right? 2014. So they had the best Wi-Fi at every McDonald's and all the parking lots are lit. So that was a very stable spot because because if you park in the wrong spot as we're traveling around, you'd get knocked in the middle of the night by the police and they'd be like, what the hell are you doing sleeping here? You know, yeah. but in the back of McDonald's parking lots, they would never knock. Huh. And it was open 24 hours usually. You could get it. Yeah. Get well, not in these small cities in America. <laughs> these are not 24 hour McDonald's. I mean, stupid question, but like, how long are you on the road at a time before you go back to MTU? Weeks. You're living out of the car with your co-founder. For weeks? There was nights we spent Super 8, Motel 6. Like, yeah. you know, there were definitely times. You, you had horrible. to treat yourself. For sure. Yeah, yeah. That, was, that was nice. But we probably spent a good 14 days out of the three months living out of our car. You out know, of a Ford Focus. Out of a Ford Focus. How yeah. do you like bathe yourself? At every university, the small hack is that they leave a pool open for their professors and the students to swim in the morning. And almost every university, if you go into the pool, you, there's free showers. I almost got arrested at Princeton because the campus security didn't understand that I was there too. They're like, you're selling career service center software, sneaking to our pool. There was a kid swim class that came out and somebody <laughs> called the campus security. Then <laughs> there were two men swimming in the pool. Yeah. So you're like sneaking. Not in the pool, but you know, in the showers, yeah, in the pool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you're like sneaking into the career fairs. Then you're sneaking into the pools. You're sneaking into the McDonald's parking lot so that you can find a spot to sleep. 
Meanwhile, you're carrying this burden of, well, there's a good reason for doing this. I'm doing this and I have to do this. Yeah, well, we thought it could work. Yeah. You know, we really thought it could work. And between the three of us as co-founders, there were some days where I was like, this is not, this can't work. And my co-founder, Ben, who's, you know, incredible. He's like, well, of course we can. This positive thing and this positive thing. And then sometimes Ben and I would be down in the car and we'd call Scott and be like, dude, this is pretty brutal. And Scott would be like, oh, we can make it happen. You know, so between the three of us, there was a lot of positive energy that we can make it happen. And then it was just like nonstop. I got mono like three times. Everyone was getting sick. People weren't sleeping. Like mono from what? Like it's just, just cold and shitty. Yeah, just <laughs> lack of sleep. Yeah. I mean, it's not like, I think this hustle culture today too, by the way, I have changed about the life and the routine I operate with. And I really don't want to over glamorize like the whole hustle culture. So I think that's one of the actually negative aspects of building companies nowadays is like, give up your life, give up your mental health, give up your fitness, start a company, hustle. This was a little bit different. We're all kind of kids that had no safety net and had given up a lot and my dad was going to lose all of his retirement money and we were just, we were frustrated. So we made, we made it happen, but I don't think it's healthy. Yeah. Like eating glass, staring into the abyss is starting a company thing. Like I agree. There is this on over, Twitter. There's yeah, this like, whole I, movement. I completely agree. And I do think it's a disservice. And I do think there's something to be said for quality rather than sheer quantity of hours. Totally. And I think if you take care of yourself, the quality of the hours that you spend on whatever life's mission you want to go take on is much higher. It's yeah. just better. Totally. So I completely agree with you. How good did those first five deals feel? And the deals are with, just to be clear, are you doing the deal with the university? With the university, yeah. And what's the deal that you're doing? The university pays for our software. They rip and replace their old career service management system, yeah. which you used to work with. And then we launched every one of their students and every one of their employers. How good was that feeling? It was super cool because everyone was sitting on the sidelines. Like of the first five, I thought four of the five were going to come over, but nobody was going to say yes first. They wanted to call like, hey, Paul, you know, are you, Sarah Otto, are you, sh- are you sure you're going to do this? She's like, I believe in these guys. But then as soon as we signed them up, we were like, oh my gosh, there's still so much we need to build part of them launching because it's a seasonal cycle, right? You launch the school in the summer, they invite all their students, they invite all their employers and everything happens at once over fall recruiting season. Not anymore. That's not the way it works at Handshake, but back then it was a very seasonal business. You're just like fighting and pressing and doing everything you can to be taken seriously right now. Like just driving around, doing everything to get some credibility and some street cred. So then second year, you get your first five done hire maybe a couple people. My friends turned down like their job offers and they're like, let's do this. Let's go. Let's, 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 <laughs> you know, everyone was like, this is bull, you know, this is Well, you've monopolized like the cool thing to do at Michigan Tech at yeah. that point. So your second year, you are growing to around 60 schools. Is that right? Yeah, we went from five to 60. Five to 60. To 160, yeah. So in the five to 60 journey, once you get to 60, you start running out of money again. Big time. Yeah. What happens? So we're going from five to 60. I mean, the first five schools to bring it to life, I mean, it was just like constant firefighting. Like we basically had to be at every career center like every three or four days. There's a guy named David Scholl at Handshake. And back then the team was basically six to eight of us. And at any one point we were in cars driving down to the universities to basically sit over their shoulder and be like, you know, Eastern Michigan ran their first career fair and they had one third of the signups they did the year before because they're like, our payments flow didn't work properly. She's like sitting there gritting her teeth. Like she has soft funding for her career service center staff. So if they didn't generate enough career service center revenue, like they were going to have to like go people in their career center office. Right. And this was like people that had very much believed in us that we were took a bet on you. Took a bet on us. And we took that super seriously. Once we got to the full first fair cycle, things started to stabilize. And that's when we were like, wow, now we have this minimally viable functional product that's you know not that buggy and is working at a serviceable level. And we, there's a ton still to go, but we had a lot of clarity in kind of our roadmap because there was such consensus around where the universities wanted to see their product. And we were good at building product. We were laying down new features and improvements. Yeah, you're engineers. A, yeah, so yeah. it was pretty great. And then on the way to the 60, that's when we started accelerating like the burn rate. So we hired three people from the career service center industry that were, you know, phenomenal teammates. And you know, it's amazing how much when you reflect on the journey timing, I look back on all this hard work and there's an aspect that's so outside of your control. What's that cool quote? You know, like luck favors. Fortune favors the bold. I don't know. Yeah. yeah but basically the idea is behind luck is how oh, people say the hardworking people get more lucky. And, but I think luck played a huge factor in this. Timing played a huge factor in our success because we were able to hire these three people from the industry and they were 40 and 50 year old folks that people respected. And that added a level of legitimacy to Handshake, that these serious industry leaders would join us. 
there's a ton of learning lessons around how some of that didn't work out over time, but I'm super thankful that they ended up joining us because when they did end up joining us, they ended up giving it their all. And what they ended up helping us do is calling a couple of their friends in the industry being like, you should really take a look at these guys. This is serious. They wouldn't join this company unless it's serious. And then our customers started to get to a point where they were actually evangelizing the fact that this was a stable product. What was critical is like if the five didn't go right, nobody else was going to buy it because everyone knows each other in this space. So then we started kind of the way we split up the efforts is like I was responsible for myself and I was responsible for selling universities with a guy named David Scholl, Ben, my co-founder, responsible for like managing the product and the team that was like implementing all the schools. And my co-founder, Scott, did everything from like software engineering to doing payroll and like that's kind of we split up responsibilities. And David and I started, once we had stabilized the schools, driving around to more schools. So we just put... I don't know, 100 days in the car driving around school to school. There's a very seasonal buying cycle. We started flying to schools, which really accelerated the burn, and we were running out of money pretty quickly. Instead of sleeping in cars, you started sleeping in airports. Seriously? Yeah, dead serious. You know those little machines that wax the floors? Like there'd be like wax yeah, on yeah. like your back as they get too close to you. you know? <laughs> <laughs> in my backpack and stuff, it was brutal. There was limited money going on. My co-founder, Ben, was like really frustrated. I bought like a Bluetooth headset because it was noise canceling. He's like, that's an irresponsible use of funds. <laughs> like, how can you do that? I'm like, dude, it's 120 bucks. But yeah, we were pretty frugal and the 60 schools what helped us succeed with the schools was the fact that our current customers were talking about the increase in student engagement and they were talking about more employers coming to there. They're talking about some of the usability flows really being handshake was built for students, whereas the other university platforms are built for the university career center. And so that was like a huge differentiator. So sign up to 60 schools about halfway through that we were running out of money. I think we probably had 30 of them signed up and then I flew out to Silicon Valley off of my Palantir intern MBA's recommendation and started the fundraising process. And David Scholl and Ben, we had this funny thing at Michigan Tech. It was there was a joke, it was no shave till you raise. So nobody shaved in the entire company until I finished the fundraise. Were yeah. you shaving? I shaved. I You're had the shaved. only yeah. one shaving. Yeah. You yeah. don't want to see me no. not shaving. <laughs> so how'd it go? How'd it go fundraising? Not good. You just driving up and down Sand Hill Road, just getting turned down left and right? The most impactful sales things we ever did at Handshake was writing handwritten letters. So Nobody would take us seriously. Nobody would respond to our emails. Nobody would pick up our cold calls. These are VCs, you're saying? These are university career centers. Oh, yes, okay. We wrote probably like two or 300, and all the career centers will talk about it. We shipped you a box with a coffee mug from your alma mater, and if you said on your LinkedIn, like, I'm a Giants fan, we'd be like, oh, you know, we'd write this handwritten letter, and it would basically personalize every single career service center director being like, Hey, my name is Garrett Lord. I'd love to tell you about this product we're building called Handshake. We see that you're a Giants fan. I'm a Giants fan. Basically like a personalized letter hitting on like any commonalities between trying to get them to talk to us. And the Christopher Center boxes with these handwritten letters, they'd open it up and there'd be this pamphlet with a coffee mug from their own water. And the Chris Centers would actually start talking to us. Be like, oh, I'd be happy to hear about your idea. And there's one guy that I was just in awe of. And his name was Andy Chan. He was the Stanford GSB. I had met other GSBs at Palantir. He was a cursive center director at the time. He was, you know, rated, they do this rankings, the number one guy. He had run a venture back company before. And I remember my very first meeting with him. He ended up being one of the early advisors to Handshake. And I talked to him probably twice a week, every single week for two years, doing everything from product roadmaps to how do we build a PL? How do we want to model out our expense space? How do we think about our sales pipeline? There was a guy named David Dubeck, who was a friend of mine back in the day, and basically teaching us how to build this business. And Andy Chan, I flew out to San Francisco, and Andy Chan took me out. He, at the time, he was living in like Palo Alto, and he introduced me to his entire VC network, probably 15 people, and we went in and pitched every person. And after every single pitch, he would drive me around. After each pitch, he'd be like, Garrett, you should do this next time, or we should answer the question this, or tonight's homework is complete this model, or alter the presentation with this feedback, and we go in the next day. And he did it for me with like four or five days, maybe even longer than that. It's hard to remember. And there was this like iterative learning process, and every single one of his friends said no. And then he's like, okay, well, let's do it again. I started picking my Palantir friend network. They introduced investors. We probably went through over 100 folks. I'd sleep on basically intern friends' couches, like work at Phil's at Phil's Coffee right across from Caltrain in Palo Alto and just pitch and pitch and pitch. And I think it took four or five months. And then I walked into uh, True Ventures office, talked to this guy named Tony Schneider. And Tony in the meeting was like, I like this a lot. 
I think we should do this deal. I will be in touch. And then called me that evening and was like, I'd love to meet my partners. And then like two days later, I met his partners and we did a, back then it was like a WebEx call or something and we'd love to lead the seed round. And then of course, other- Once you get one. Once you get one, then then of course we had somebody else sawing the finish line, Lightspeed, who then was like, okay, you got a term sheet now. I'll give you a term sheet. We ended up splitting the baby with Lightspeed and True. So we did a three and a half million dollar seed round. And did you call the team and like, shave your fucking beards? Yeah, shave, shave your beards. And another funny thing was like, we told Lightspeed, as soon as we signed the term sheet, I was like, we need a wire like Monday. You were going to run out of money. One of our software engineers was paying for everything at Handshake. My dad was like, I don't have a ton left here. There was no money left. There was one part of the seed round prior to going out to Silicon Valley, my dad and I basically started pitching doctors and dentists in Metro Detroit. So... Andy Chan flew out because nope, we did, they didn't think we could raise institutional capital. And Andy Chan spent the whole week there and we went to the country club. There's this guy that plays paddle and he did well in the 90s and owns three dentist offices and like he wanted to check and we would go to people's <laughs> living rooms. Yeah. And there was this guy who like wrote a seed round, like a pre seed. Yeah. It was like a pre seed. It was pre seed. It was like an ex Israeli security sales leader and he wrote this predatory term sheet, which was like super pro rata and like 50% of the business. And then we parlayed that. One of the most influential people ever for me as a leader has been this guy named Bob Myloid, who's a Priceline executive. And we parlayed that term sheet and we talked to Bob and Bob gave us a term sheet. And then once we had Bob's term sheet, who's like a Silicon Valley kind of legend, then we flew out to Palo Alto. But I think I was kind of doing a little bit of both at one time. It's like hedging optionality between yeah. both. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, it was like, it was very unclear until Tony said yes. Like that was the real game changer. How good did that feel? Oh my gosh. Well, okay. You know what? It's funny when I talk to folks like you, which I do, I very fortunate to talk to folks like you quite often who just have had these insane rises and successes whenever they have these moments, they're never elated. The description that I always get is relieved. They're just like, okay. You just move the goalpost down the field. What do you mean by that? I never played football, but you had to make it 10 yards. You made three yards. Like, cool, don't celebrate till you get the first down. And then as soon as you get the first down, well, you got to get the next first down and you turn the ball over. I like to describe it at Handshake. I have this like user guide and, and the user guide is like, I don't have a rear view mirror. Like I don't celebrate things from behind. It's just constant focus on... And that's actually some like self-work I'm trying to do, but you don't feel relieved because if you think about it back then, it's like, we so cool, we raised our seed round. We're only at 60 schools. We have no revenue model. Yeah. Every one of my friends and all, still my dad's money, now this investor's money, it's not going to go anywhere. Like, Yeah, yeah. You've redefined a new normal for what, you're, for what you want to do. Even this last round is we're a Series F company, but like the goalposts moved down the field. Now it's go public. Then when it's go public, it's show 50% growth year over year or higher growth year over year. Like everything in venture is about growth and it's about quality unit economics, but at no point do you ever get an opportunity to be like, woo, like, totally. so to stoked I got my series B. Totally. You know? There's an article. I don't know if you've read it. If not, I'll send it to you, but it's from one of the Brex co-founders and it was around Thanksgiving and it's about gratefulness. And one of the things that he talks about is when him and his brother were building Brex, which I'm sure you know the story, but they're very young. And they always said, if we get this, then we'll be so happy. And then they'd get that. And then immediately they were pretty much miserable because they are already, by the time they're about to get there, redefined what the next totally. 10 yards is. Totally. And so he talks about living in the delta between their current state and their desired future state. It really resonated with me. I like that. Yeah. So, okay. You raise the seed, you fly back to Michigan. <laughs> Everyone came out to Palo Alto. I found this mansion in Los Altos and it was cheaper. I done the math. A lot of people were doing this at the time. It was cheaper to live in a mansion than it was to get a house, like way cheaper. What do you mean? If you buy an office and everyone has to rent their apartments, then you have to pay everyone more money to right. build a Ford apartment and you have to be in an office. And these are like all pretty much my friends. At this point, we started hiring my sister's friends because her friends were much better at like talking to customers. And, like, and, and at this point, there's what, like 20, 25 of you? I think it was like probably, well, even less, like 15 people, 12 you, people. And so you rented a mansion and flew everyone to yeah. Los Altos. One of the co-founder of LinkedIn's mansion. No way. Yeah, which is so funny. Which is ironic now. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's ironic. And we lived in his house and he knew it. He pretended he didn't, but then afterwards, he was like pretty happy about the story. I don't mean to like over Hollywoodize this, but it's kind of what the Facebook guys did too, right? For sure. It's like just I mean, like, this is a different era. Like nowadays, seed round companies are raising like $50 million pre's. This was the norm in 2014, 2015. Yeah. And I called my cousin who was working as like a bartender and I was like, 
pack your bags, drive a U-Haul from Detroit up to Michigan Tech, pack the house, drive the U-Haul across the country with the Ford Focus, everyone else fly out, move into the house. Lightspeed hadn't wired, True hadn't wired money yet, so one of the first engineers bought all the desks. I went to Ikea and started installing the desks. Everyone showed up two days later and we all moved in the house. And then we just started hiring friends, software engineering friends, and account management friends from my sister and my network. How many bedrooms is the house? Probably like seven bedrooms. And I think the average number of people in the bedroom was- There's like 20 people. Yeah, we had an intern. We had a kind like of an air intern Like air mattresses. Room. Oh, bunk beds, cheap bunk beds. <laughs> yeah. Serious? Yeah. It is beautiful house. Bunk beds, you get more people on the ground it is than beautiful air mattresses. Yeah. How fondly do you look back on that time? That was really cool because all these Michigan Tech friends and Central Michigan friends, we moved out to this house. You know, it's just a crazy house. And then there was this like apple orchard in the backyard and a pool. And I remember when everyone first got there, everyone jumped in the pool and we were like, wow, we're in Silicon Valley and we're doing our startups working and this dream from Michigan Tech that we talked about. It was unbelievable. And one guy brought a hockey net, which obviously a Michigan thing. And you would shoot the hockey pucks off the dry erase board and the hockey net in the backyard. And then it was go time. And then it was basically as fast as you can blink. And I we were in the middle of implementation season with 60 universities. And this is season number two. Season number two. But this is when things really start to like, how that goes determines how big the next year is. You, you can only monetize employers if you're at a large enough university network. Now things were like on. And I kind of knew. And did you feel the same form of pressure in that this season as you did in season one with the first five schools in the implementation? Yeah, because we went from small schools to, I mean, in that next year we powered- You just leveled up. Yeah, we powered Stanford, Princeton, Cornell, Chicago, the University of Michigan, University of Chicago. Those were some of the biggest schools, plus almost every Michigan school. That was year two. So that was like a big step up. That was like, I was on a first name basis with all those Christopher Center directors and the complexity required to operate at those number of universities. It felt like a whole other chapter. Yeah. So then you get to 60 by the end of that year. Mm-hmm. Implementation goes pretty well. Yeah. We had this getting to green initiative, you know, like the green man suit and like always sunny from Philadelphia. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I said that once we got to green from an MPS survey that I would wear the green man suit to all hands. We would always joke around about getting to green. That was the whole theme. And what was cool is the team, we had this value, like act with empathy. And that meant like really showing up for our university partners because this is it just caused a lot of pain for them switching systems. The joke was you would rather retire than switch systems. So like everyone cared a lot. And I think that came from particular my co-founder Ben's like a really unbelievable human being. And everyone exemplified this, like we we were going to show up for our customers and it try to make personal successful. to make them successful. Yeah. We just cared a lot because these yeah. were really great people that totally. believed in us. Yeah. So you get to 60 company is 30 ish people at this point. You're moving into an office somewhere in the Bay area. Moving out of the mansion? We lived in the mansion for a while, probably like a year and a half, yeah. And at that point, had you raised the A yet? No. Money does two things. It extends time or condenses time. We were using this money to extend time. We just needed to buy time. This venture capitalist friend of mine introduced us to this guy named Jonathan Stahl. And he's like, you should maybe think about hiring an executive. And I'm like, oh, oh, interesting. Like, hiring an executive. Okay. And he's maybe like your head of business. And I'm like, okay, I get it. So I go over to Phil's coffee and he's got like two Jonathan, Jonathan, who's just, he's been so impactful at handshake. He's the COO now. Yeah. He's COO and he's helped me grow. You know, he's just an awesome guy and we wouldn't be here today without him and what he's done. And he's got like an Android phone or an iPhone. I'm like, Oh wow, cool. Old nerdy guy. You know, he's got two phones. Oh, maybe I'll get this guy a shot. He's got like an MBA, like at Palantir. It was like anti MBA, uh-huh. you know? Uh-huh. So I meet the guy and he ends up, I don't know what in the world he was thinking, but he ended up joining us. I knew what he was thinking. He was really frustrated about this problem too. He's a very mission oriented individual. He joins us as our head of business mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. and plays like every role since then. But he joins us like maybe three weeks in, he starts getting the numbers that my co-founder Scott's running. And he's like, when are we going to raise more money? We're in a run of money. Like you got to raise money eight months before you run out of money. And yeah. he ended up like spearheading the series A process. Yeah. That process was so different the second time around with him. Telling the story, writing the financial Absolutely. model, talking it's, it to It helps to have market. adults in the table. Totally. And it helps to have a business that's shown some repeatability. For sure. Did you come to this Kleiner office or the Sandhill Kleiner office? The Sandhill Kleiner office. Isn't it ironic that we're recording this at yeah. Kleiner? It's <laughs> so weird. Okay, so you raised the A. You feel like you got some good mojo coming on now? Or did immediately the exact same feeling happen of like, now we need to go into an office? Now it's like we're a professional company. What was his internal state? I know Mojo. I even think today we don't try to operate with a Mojo. There's still like a lot left to prove. It's an exciting time. The cool thing for us is we needed capital to build and accelerate the team. 
because the service area of Handshake, there's employers, there's right. students, universities. Right. We are like so constrained. And that's been the story up until today around the opportunity. Yeah. I heard when you were raising money, I think it was from your C to your A. Is this true? Someone was telling me this. Is this true that you would go for runs listening to Lose Yourself by Eminem, just crying? Why'd you feel that way? Just a lot of pressure? Handshake, like, it wasn't intuitive that it was going to work. The amount we needed to accomplish, that Bill Gates quote, you tend to overestimate what you can accomplish in a year and underestimate what you can accomplish in five. The only way Handshake was going to work is if we signed up 80 plus percent of the universities in the country and that we built and monetized an employer business that nobody had ever paid for before. And that we had built a student product that engaged millions of college students through the university partnership. We were sitting at 60 schools when we raised the AI on the way to 160. There was extremely fragmented happiness across the university population. There was deep competition in the university landscape. The employers basically told us they weren't going to spend any money on the product. We told all the investors like, oh, employers are going to spend so much money on this product and it's so clear. We had so many no's. I mean, the person that ended up backing us for our Series A was like John Stoll's friend who I think must have met with me 25 times. I mean, I met with Bing Gordon 10 times. I met with Swati 10 times. I met with Eric Fang. Eric Fang must have redone our deck eight times with us. I pitched the partnership twice. I don't think there was consensus that this was a good opportunity, you're right? And so we got done with our Series A. I was like, wow, if anything, I've just learned, what do we need to accomplish, right? So it things didn't really start to feel like it was working until the Series D. I didn't start to develop a sense of confidence that I wasn't going to let people down. Right. That makes sense. Like that there was a safety net finally. Yes. Was it hard transitioning being someone that had like lived this the entire time? Did you find it difficult to transition from scrappy CEO who drives around the country getting wax on his back to scaled CEO hiring executives? Like was that transition difficult for you? I mean, I feel really fortunate that I've had a lot of people that have poured a ton into to me and helped build who I am today. I think the one attribute about myself that I, I feel really confident in is just this like relentless resourcefulness. That's a Paul Graham thing. Yeah. I've read so much of stuff I don't even know what's his and what's mine. Yeah. But I love that line. And I also think I've really invested at every point in this journey to try to like what do I need to be doing six months from now to make this company work? What do I need to learn to be successful six months from now? And now my job is so cool. I get to work with unbelievable executives who are so much better at every area of Handshake. I get to work with them on prioritizing where we're headed and storytelling where we're going and working with them on problem solving. Like That's different than leaving a 13-hour car ride to get to a university to have a 45-minute demo and a 15-minute Q&A and then driving 13 hours back to your friends telling them you did or didn't sign them up. The executives that you've hired recently are super impressive. Valerie Workman as the chief legal officer, formerly the VP of people at Tesla reporting to Elon. Deepak, who's the former VP of AI at LinkedIn. He had all of AI machine right? LinkedIn. Yeah. Uh, now on the team, like Jonathan, obviously, like the super impressive executive team. Thanks. Yeah, it's, it's pretty cool how we all compliment each other too. Super impressive. And you've come a long way, obviously, which is insane. I was forwarded the email that you sent for the last investor, the memo. Because I was like, hey, I want to see, I'm getting ready for this thing. Like, I want to read like, where's the business today? What's going on? In the memo, you said, I believe this is the earliest We've ever sent out our board materials. So I'm expecting everyone to come well prepared on Wednesday. I was like, oh, oh, laying down the law. I thought that was really cool. I just thought like, all right, like you're using the people around you to help drive this business forward. Is that how you feel? For sure. I mean, the business gets, my team is so capable and the whole external leadership team is so capable. Like they've got their eye on this year and I, I'm super involved in this year. But as you rise up at the level, now my executive team, we talk about where we want to be three years from now. They're doubling the size of their team. They're doubling revenue. We'll double the team this year, we'll double revenue. We've done that every year, if not faster in the past. And yeah, I feel really confident in our plan. And the other crazy thing is just how much bigger the opportunity is than we ever imagined. Could be the next LinkedIn. That's the goal. I mean, why not LinkedIn like plus indeed? Yeah. I would love to build, and I think our team is really motivated by the idea of bringing more quality to this overall kind of career building process. And I think we want to be the biggest job site on the internet. Is it weird for you as an honest reflection, thinking about like, even now we're sitting here, you're like going through these things that were really painful and hard, sleeping at McDonald's, driving around to then, you know, you're on Jim Cramer, you're like speaking to Harvard's students about entrepreneurship. Is it just kind of surreal? How does that feel? 
I don't know. I kind of don't take myself too seriously. It's kind of funny, right? Like it's almost like the minute that you start taking that stuff really meaningfully is the minute I feel like you kind of lost it. Yeah, the same friends I've always had are my same friends. The same hockey buddies that moved here when we raised our first seed rounds are still my best friends. I you know, still talk to my dad every single week. Yeah, the opportunity now is like I get to talk to HBS kids and get to speak with cool investors, but I feel really blessed. I'm really excited. I'm having a ton of fun. You tweeted something. It was an Edison tweet, and it said, uh, opportunity is missed by most people because it's dressed in overalls and looks like work. I love that quote. <laughs> what do you make of it? I think the reason I resonate with that and I still resonate with it, a lot of us at Handshake and a lot of people I really respect, we got to earn the opportunities. You got to show up for it. And I think a lot of people just expect it to be given to you. The one thing I feel really proud of in building Handshake, there's a lot of companies in Silicon Valley, unbelievable companies that are phenomenal places to work and they're having unbelievable success and they're at the right place in the right time. And there's quite a bit of aspect of luck. And I think there's been a lot of luck, but we have fought to be here because of the decision-making, the hard work we put in for a very long period of time. We now have this unbelievable opportunity. And quite frankly, I think there's nobody more well-positioned to disrupt these companies like Indeed and LinkedIn than Handshake. A lot of people would think that this now becoming kind of consensus, but that is a plus years into kind of getting to this moment where now it is just go time. We were very, very contrarian and ended up being right. In your Series F announcement, one of the things that, I think it was in that announcement that I read this, is the aspirations for the company to go public and probably a couple of years away, maybe less, maybe more, I have no idea. But you said we would never SPAC. Yeah. Why is that? Let's just be honest. SPACs are down over 60% this year. Yeah. 80% of SPACs were really shitty, unit economic, terrible businesses that got masked under these like one pagers by a couple of people on Twitter and yeah. like tricked all of retail investors into these, a good 50% of them are just garbage businesses. Yeah. Maybe 20% of them are like decent businesses. I'm not as immersed into this as probably I should be, but like the reason I said we never spac is because I just think that the most quality companies, they're not spacking. They're direct listing or they're going public via traditional IPO process. Name five very high quality companies that are overachieving results and are up from their IPO price or even flat with their IPO price that went public via SPAC. I think those are kind of the C minus, D minus companies. Yeah, that makes sense. I also don't want to like offend anyone because I do think that there are quality companies, quality leadership organizations, and like the time will tell if they're successful. I just think you look at a good, let's just say 50% of them are like really trash businesses that were kind of like yep. tricks. Yep. Kind of reminds me of the ICO stuff. Totally. I wrap all these things very similarly. If you're listening to this and you're inspired and motivated, you want to come work for the next generation of this company, are you hiring? I assume you're hiring for everything. Are there any key roles that you want to shout out? And if so, what's the best way to get a hold of you if, if that's the best way to do it? We are hiring in every function across the company. We're doubling inside this company. We're going for 500 to 1,000 people this year. Every team is hiring. Huge shout outs to product designers, to engineers, to data scientists, to sales reps, to recruiters. Those are some of our most pressing areas. And you can email me at garrett at joinhandshake.com. Last question. What does the word grit mean to you? Kind of like the Thomas Edison quote, put your head down and grind. Garrett, thank you. Thanks, man. So fun. That's it. Thanks for listening. If you're just discovering the podcast, we have a lot more episodes from organizations like Snowflake, Twilio, Slack, LinkedIn, Box, etc. If you want to keep up or support the show, the best way to do so is by following us on Spotify, subscribing on Apple, and leaving a review. Also, we love feedback, so feel free to email us, grit at kleinerperkins.com.